So Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show today. I would like to welcome you on the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Good uh, Long time coming, I think. Yes, certainly it has been. Yeah. Really looking forward to having this conversation with you. So uh, maybe can you begin by introducing yourself to the audience? Tell us more about yourself and your company. Sure. So my name is Jim Gavigan. Uh, I own a company called Industrial Insight, and we work in the, I, I call it the data-driven process optimization space. You know, what kind of what our history has been is, and, and just uh, I'll tell a little bit about my background, but traditionally we've been working a lot with people who own the Pi system. You know, that is a historian slash data infrastructure. And we try to help them really use it much more proactively instead of just, hey, something broke. Let's go look in Pi and see what happened. We we try to keep them from breaking stuff and from getting into the ditch from a process standpoint. You know, how can we help you, you know, keep things, you know, where you should be instead of, hey, something broke. We need to go look. And, uh, you know, my background, I actually started out very first job out of college was a vibration analysis job in 1995. So that has actually paid off a bunch of times, just kind of understanding that concept and rotating equipment seems to come up every job that I've ever done. Uh, then I was a controls engineer for six years. I cut my teeth on Modicon PLCs, um, did TI, Square D, you know, a lot of other stuff. Uh, worked for Rockwell Automation for six years, both on the sales side. I transitioned into the sales side because I was tired of working weekends, holidays, and you know, getting calls at night. You know, all that. Um, being an engineer, uh, even though I loved the work, it was just time to move and unplug a little bit. So I got into sales. Uh, worked for Rockwell for six years, and then I did a technical consulting role my last year there. So I was on the sales side, but I was like a technical resource pre-sales to immediate post-sales. And I worked for a system integrator out of Memphis called Logical Systems um, and helped them with their business development activities. But I never got to put the technical hat down because there were times that they just needed technical expertise. So I did some of that. And that's where I got introduced to the Pi system. And we helped a large food manufacturer. Um, they were actually making cattle feed and we helped them land a new customer which doubled their business. So they had to build a whole new plant to support this business. And I went, wow, this data thing, yeah. <laughs> you know, just made two companies millions of dollars. That's even what I called it because I didn't know what, what else to call it. But that was the first time I had ever proactively used data to optimize a batch process or any process. And then we saw the results. It, it literally helped them land a new customer. And it, it was truly an amazing experience. So fast forward maybe three years from that and OSI Soft recruited me. And so I went to work for them for a couple of years um, selling pie. Um, and that's when I moved down here to Florida. I, I took a strategic account manager role and I dealt with a lot of really large, you know, companies and in various industries, power, paper, chemicals, you know, et cetera. And so you know, I got to learn a lot more about the IT side of things and kind of how all that worked. But the thing that was always a, a struggle for me was I could very clearly see all the things we were releasing, all the new functionality, how that could be used. I would kill to have that when I was a controls engineer trying to figure out problems. I couldn't get people to see how much this was going to benefit them. And so when I had my third boss in two years and he and I didn't get along at all, and I just wasn't going to compromise who I am, I left uh, or I was going to get fired. I went from, I was on a uh, performance improvement. I mean, we're going to fire you plan, unfortunately. And um, I, I realized, you know, I don't do well in corporate America because I will just tell it like it is. Yeah. And uh, sometimes that's not the right thing to do. <laughs> I guess I haven't learned that. But uh, I just I can't help myself. But um, so anyway, um, when I left there, I went back to LSI and started their pie practice and then realized I really need to do this on my own. And so, you know, we do pie system. We've gotten into business intelligence. We do a lot with Power BI, a little bit with Tableau. Uh, we've gotten into multivariate analysis and, you know, some other tools. Um, friend of both of ours, Jeff Nepper over at Flow, where we just signed a partner agreement with them, just had a press release last week on that. 
you know, so what we really try to do is help people use their their manufacturing data proactively. That's really what we're trying to get people to do. Instead of just reacting to things, we're trying to get them to, you know, I, I always use the analogy, people are looking out their rearview mirror, you know, when dealing with their data, right? And we try to get them looking out the windshield. It's much larger. You can see ahead of you where you're going, where you're at. You know, that's not to say you never look in the rearview mirror. We do that when driving, but that's not where we focus our attention. Right. We focus our attention on the windshield. It's much larger for us. So we try to get people looking at the windshield. And so that's really um, the the mission of our company is, is to help people use data better and to drive actual real cost savings and profitability. So that's awesome. us. Yeah. Awesome. That's a really great career you've got there, um, Jim. And uh, you certainly are the expert when it comes to data-driven um, uh, manufacturing. And um, that's why I thought you'd be the perfect person to have uh, this conversation on this specific topic of data-driven optimization. Yep. So maybe do kind of like Appreciate kick things that. off. Can you can you briefly explain what it means to to be a data-driven organization? What it means to 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 like data-driven optimization in the context of of the process industry? Yeah. So. It's- I'll kind of start with where I just left off, right? Is is that looking out the rearview mirror. And what I found when I began selling Pi was talking to the people actually out using the software. Okay. It, it was very strange to me because everyone I was talking to was in IT. Yep. That was who was managing the Pi systems. But the people actually using it and getting benefit out of it was the people in OT and, and process control engineers and operations people. Like, why am I not talking to them, you know? And why are you not talking to them? So what I really tried to, or or, or what we really try to focus on is getting people, as I said, looking out that, that windshield, right? So instead of having a problem that keeps recurring is, well, let's build some kind of a solution. It, it could be something in the Pi system. It could be just a simple dashboard in Pi Vision that shows you when that problem is about to happen or when quality is going off spec or when you're about to have downtime, you know, and there's, there's some key markers for that. Sometimes it could be something as as simple as a dashboard. It could be an email notification ahead of time. You know, sometimes we use multivariate models to understand what drives a quality parameter in a certain way because they don't have a good understanding of it. But what you're really trying to do is, is take those bottlenecks and those problems that you have as a manufacturer and try to gain a better understanding, get ahead of it, right? And, and move that bottleneck somewhere else and then go attack that one, right? So really, that's what we try to help our customers do. And we're, we're, I'm finding that we're very unique. You know, we we actually don't even... There's a lot of, let me back up just a second. There's a lot of integrators in our space that can do a lot of the things we do and they do it very well. What they want though, is a very clear box and scope of work that we're going to do X, right? You're going to, Mr. or Miss customer, you're going to tell us to do exactly what you need. More times than not, what we're finding is customers don't even know what they want or need, They just know they have this problem. They have a bunch of data and they have no idea how to solve the problem using that data. And uh, we just did a, we're finishing up an engagement with a large paper company uh, at one of their mills. And it started out where I went, went to their facility, spent almost a week there. And I sat through all their morning meetings to see how they were using data to drive those conversations, right? And what I found was they were working really hard to get at the data that they needed. And and a great example is I asked the mill manager, I said, so what keeps you up at night? And he said, well, it's not necessarily keeps me up at night, but let's just say the first thing I look at when I come in in the morning is I look at, is our mill in balance? They have a what, what they call a single line mill, right? It's one one digester, one paper machine. It's kind of one of everything. So if one process outruns the other one, then they start having problems, right? So he tries to keep everything, you know, in a nice balance. And I said, well, how do you, 
how do you understand that? And he said, well, I go to this screen, I look at these numbers, then I go to this screen, I look at those numbers, then I go look at this screen, look at those numbers. And he's kind of like doing all this stuff in his head. I'm like, why don't you just have one screen that tells you whether or not you're in balance, gives you all the key numbers, tells you one thing, you know, this is running too fast, this is running too slow, and you're going to crash. Why, why don't you just have a screen that tells you all of that? Well, I guess I never thought of it. And so we built a screen to do that, you know, and of course, there's some calculations running under the hood. There's there's some things that we had to do to get all of that kind of wrapped up. But now he's not going to have to go to one screen. He'll be able to look at it on his phone, get a real quick sense of how things are going. And what was interesting is watching their morning meetings, the the, <laughs> the first thing they put up was a Power BI sheet. So I was like, oh, this is good. This is a you know great thing. And they were talking about, you know, some metrics and things like that. The next thing they were taught went to was a handwritten environmental sheet. Like, okay, we just went back 20 years now. Yeah. And they were talking about like water usage and stuff like that. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, where do they get that? You know, I'm literally looking. They they know exactly where to look. But it was very difficult. And then they went to this very complex uh, PyVision screen that had a certain part of their process, had a bunch of the key numbers on it. And there's probably 200 numbers on this screen, you know, and graphics and, you know, stuff going everywhere. And I hear them start talking like, well, you know, Kappa is this and, you know, this metric is doing that. And I'm like, where are they getting that? I'm looking at this screen. I'm like, this is too complex. Yeah. Why, why do you not have all of this just like a mill dashboard that shows you here's all our key metrics where, you know, and here's how we're running. You know, then you can drill down into details from there. Right. And so what we've really kind of tried to help them do is just simplify their look at things like when people are working too hard to see when they're going off spec or off out of balance. Right. So that's that's kind of the the thought process behind this whole, you know, data driven process optimization. It, it came to me, I guess, over the summer that, hey, maybe this is really what we do, you know, because we're part process engineer, yep. you know, we're part IT. You know, we're part consultant, we're part integrator. So we fill a lot of roles, Yeah. you know, and we try to look at things through the lens of a process engineer or an operations manager. Like how I, I tell all my people, understand our customer's business and how they look at things. And then try to imagine being in their shoes and say, what would I need to run this better? And build that. You'll be really close. You're not going to get it all right. That's okay. Yeah. But it gives that customer a sense of, well, I would have never thought of that. Now that you've shown me that, now here's what I want. And that's that's kind of in essence what we do. So sometimes that ambiguity is great for us. Yeah, that helps. That, does that make sense? Yeah, certainly. Certainly does. Yeah, I mean, so I find that uh, in some cases, um, when you're dealing with like um, process engineers or people who are sitting with the problem, it's, in most cases, it might not be hard to convince them that this is what you need to do. But the other aspect of it is really kind of like convincing business leaders to adopt like a different way or a new approach to, to solving problems. So yep. in, in your perspective, what are the significant opportunities that you think um, are, are available to get uh, like buy-in from uh, business uh, leaders, or maybe if you've got an example to share of a situation where like data storytelling really resonated with the business leadership. Yeah, there's, there's a couple, that is a challenge. Like one of the things that we, and we fight this constantly, I, I've got a myriad of projects that we've done that just died, you know, that we, we are really proud of. We really thought that was going to really help drive the business much in a much better direction. And then what's, what happens is, is key people leave or move, you know, within the company. Yeah. It might be this young hotshot engineer that we've been working with. Who's got these great ideas. We build something for them. They figure out, Hey, they're really smart. We're going to promote them. It dies. Right. Or they leave the company and go do something else or, you know, a key leader, you know, leaves. We are, our history is riddled with that boneyard of, of things. So, so what I think we, we've really tried to do is get 
you know, everyone from the operator to the management team, you know, ho however high that is, we're working at individual plant level, make sure it's like the plant and operations manager, you know, to drive that, um, you know, if it's a corporate, you know, initiative, you know, we try to make sure that corporate understands, but then you have to get down to the plant level. And sometimes they don't want to listen to corporate and sometimes for good reason, you know, sometimes, you know, corporate says they're there to help, but they're really not. And, and it's not that they don't mean to, but I don't know. It's, it, it's a struggle. We, we, we see it constantly. So, I mean, I think a, a really good example we have, I've got a couple that I, I wrote down. I've got some notes kind of over here. Yep. Um, one of them was a, at a chemical plant. And this is one that goes back several years, but it, it has, I know, saved this company millions of dollars. And this was one actually I did. Um, several years ago, but they had this issue where they're bringing um, an incoming stream of material into the plant and then they extract what they need, make products out of it, and then put the rest back into the ground to keep well pressures up. So it's it, it's almost like a microcosm of the oil and gas industry, right? They, ha they have upstream with a well, they have midstream with a pipeline, and then they have basically a refinery, so downstream, right? So it's kind of a microcosm of that. Um, they had a problem where at the most inopportune moments, they would get a contamination, um, from an oil and grease incursion, which is bad for a lot of the products that they make. And the, kind of the way it worked is it would, it would get to the plant and then it would go through, a, uh, they would do a stripping process and then it would go through purification. Well, at the end of the purification process, they were lab sampling every four hours. All of a sudden, they would go from five parts per million to 800 parts per million of oil and grease. Wait, stop the presses. You know, wh where's all this material? Who's got some of it? Have you made anything with it? You know, so literally, they would have to shut down. And, and they make a lot of stuff. And, you know, this, this is a pretty, you know, lucrative business for them. And so it was a really bad day when that happened, because then you would have to figure out, all right, we got to get that back to the recycle tank. We're going to figure out how to rework it. You know, some stuff you just would have to dispose of because you couldn't recover it. And so I worked with them for about six weeks. This was our first foray into machine learning. And it was, that was a nightmare. Um, you know, I learned a lot about how machine learning works, how they think, you know, all that through that process. And I, I've got a funny story about that. Maybe we'll get to, but anyway, I ended up with, with working with their engineers, understanding the process. I ended up building just a simple dashboard with a weighted calculation based on first principles, based on stuff that they knew, like, Hey, if we see the specific gravity of the incoming stream drop by X amount, and it was, it was minuscule. It was small. Yeah. You wouldn't think it was statistic statistically significant, but the oil and grease would drop that specific gravity just enough, you know, where they would see it. And it had a very distinct marker. It almost looked like a check mark. Um, so that would, that would happen. We would see a, a spike in an incinerator that was in that stripping process. And there was a couple other things we would see. So I just built a weighted calculation. They would say, Hey, here's how much of a chance I think you have of this oil and grease incursion. Well, it, you know, it took a few revisions and I worked with some of their engineers. I mean, it wasn't just all me, you know, as much as I would love to just take credit for it. It wasn't all me. You know, they had a lot to, to say about it. I just thought of some a way to put it together that they had never thought of. Yeah. And they they had a graph. They And if they hadn't done this, I, I wouldn't have been able to do what they're doing. They had a spaghetti graph, as I like to call it. There was a bunch of trends on a screen, probably 10 pens. Uh there was a red box or a red outline around the trend when this event happened. And then some, some letters and numbers turned red, but you really couldn't tell what was going on. You had to know what you were looking at. Well, I just boiled all that down into a zero to hundred percent chance of, Hey, I think you're going to have an oil and grease calculation. I'll put it at the top left of the screen. And then what they were able to do is if they saw that number creep up, they could go out and sample it and say, Oh yeah, we've got this event. And then just run it to the recycle tank. As soon as it cleared, they would start producing again. So that way they wouldn't make a bunch of bad product. Yeah. And this has saved them millions of dollars. And so that was actually an operator tool that the plant manager, the operations manager, even some people up in corporate were like, 
holy crap, this is really pretty dang impressive. Like we need to do more of this, right? That's when it hits home, when you catch something like that. And you don't always do it. Um, There was one that we did for a midstream pipeline company. (laughs) It's, It's kind of funny. I talked to them not really that long ago. This is one of those old boneyard projects that died. But there was a learning in here that was super powerful is they knew that they probably had a $20 million opportunity at this one station. And if they just ran the pumps and these are massive pumps, like five, 6,000 horsepower pumps at or near their best efficiency point. Right. And it, it was, I think it was like 70 to 120% of their best efficiency point. And so they were doing some stuff in Tableau, kind of looking at it a little bit rear view mirror, like where were we running? And I said, I can build that in Pi Vision. You know, Ben Still, who works for me, had just done a three-stage compressor curve for another of our customers. And I said, a pump curve is a lot simpler. If you just give me the equations, I can build you a real-time pump curve and, yeah. you know, tell you where you're running and whether you're, you know, in or, or around your BEP. So I, I did that and just a, it took us just a couple of weeks to do it. And... It was telling because then I was able to tell them, I think I think I did the, the first demo in like April and I was able to tell them, hey, you've been off BEP for 23 days, six hours and four minutes for this year. And I couldn't I couldn't tell them I knew like about how much that was costing them. So I said, hey, look, I, I don't know the numbers, but I'm sure that's a really big number to you in throughput. Right. And. It saves on the equipment if you're running your pumps around the best efficiency point. You know, you're not cavitating them or you're not overloading them. So they run better and longer. And so that was one where I think everyone at the corporate level saw it. They, The conversation I had with them, you know, sometime like early this year was, Jim, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe how long it took us to actually get the operators and the operations people to actually run the way we were telling them to run. And it was millions of dollars. I mean, millions. And so this was one of those boneyard projects because after we did the pilot, a bunch of things changed, a bunch of politics got involved, a bunch of people wanted to attach themselves to the project. And then it never really went forward after a couple of fits and starts. They said, all right, we're going to use somebody else to do it you know, who's much larger than your company because we think they're better fit. And they ended up, you know, getting kicked off off the job, not through anything they did, but because that company couldn't get themselves organized. And now I've heard that there's even IT is is doing something and these reliability people who had all this savings couldn't even get a seat at the table. So sometimes there's nothing you can do as the integrator to do that as, as the end user, you just have to keep selling it, keep, keep talking to people, you know, keep, you have to find the right stakeholder who's got a checkbook and responsibility and who wants to make a change in the organization, who wants to make a name for themselves. Right. And sometimes that's, that's the key. You have to find that, that one person who is like, Hey, I'm really trying to make a name for myself here. If we go do that project and we get all these savings and, you know, do all this stuff, it gets me to my next step. You know, sometimes you have to do that. It's, it's a trick, but, and, and some companies it's hard to do. Like it's almost impossible to do in some companies I'm, I'm, I've found. And then others are, are becoming more data-driven. So Interesting. It, it, it's a hard thing. Cause I, 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 um, I wish I had it all figured out. because my our history as industrial insight wouldn't be riddled with all these projects that never seem to come to fruition like we thought they should oh yeah absolutely so i mean in in cases where like you do get like uh, buying uh, 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 what do you see as being the primary challenges uh, when transitioning from um not data driven 
to being a data-driven organization? What do you see it could be technical, cultural? What are the primary or the, the, the common challenges that you come across in your experience? Typically, it's cultural. It's typically, you know, especially I've been in the southern United States for the last 25, no, longer than that, since 88. So 35 years. Is that right? My math's correct. Um, well, we've always done it that way. Why do we change now? That's what we run into is people just don't want to change. You know, I mean, as pe most people don't like change. They like stability. Yeah. They like to know what their role is and how to do things. You know, a lot of people just can't deal with it. And that's that's always, you know, a challenge. But what you have to appeal to is I'm trying to make your job easier. I'm trying to make it where, you know, if, if, if it's the operator, they don't want to have to deal with problems all day and react to all of this stuff. They would much rather kick back, have their feet on the desk, you know, and just watch the process run. It might be a little more boring, but it's a lot less stressful. Most of them would rather have that and a few little things here and there pop up, you know, to kind of keep a little bit of excitement in the day than just to have complete chaos all day. And then I think from a management perspective, you have to appeal to, you know, and I think we're going to talk about this later, you have to appeal to the knowledge drain issue, right? Pretty much every plant in the U.S. is getting younger. I was at a at this paper facility, and I think the plant manager told us, I think I'm trying to remember what the number was. It was like 45, 50% of his workforce had six years or less experience. Yeah. That's... And, and so what you have to appeal to is those people that have been around who are getting ready to retire, you have to appeal to their legacy. And so what do you want to leave behind? Do you want to leave behind nothing and hope that the people behind you figure it out? You spent 25, 30, 35 years of your blood, sweat, and tears at this facility or in this company, and you don't want to leave it better. And a lot of times that gets them thinking a little. Um, they're the ones that are, are tougher to change. And what, what I always tell them is I'm not building these tools for you. You may have tools that help you solve these problems, albeit it takes you a while. I want these kids that are quote unquote kids that are coming in to have the same chance you do to solve these problems when you're gone. And so I think that, you know, the big challenge is, is to get people to change and adopt, you know, some changes. Change management's the biggest and, and the hardest part of what we do. And you just have to appeal to the operations or the engineers, I'm trying to make your life easier to management. I'm trying to make your life less stressful and to make sure that you're still running well. And I'm trying to give your people a chance, you know, when all this knowledge retires. So those, to me, the biggest challenge is change management. It's it's not usually the technology. Yeah, absolutely. That That's usually the easy part. You know, yeah. we're, we're all smart people. We can figure the technology out. Yes. You've got a lot of young people coming in who've grown up with technology. They grew up with a phone or an iPad or, you know, a computer at their, you know, beck and call, you know, attached to them. They know technology. It's not hard for them. You know, I, I look at a lot of the stuff you do, you know, I watched your, um, oh, it was the, it was some kind of a data twin model that, you know, in Azure that you were talking about, you know, and, and all the JSON and stuff. To me, that's not at all appealing. I'm 53 or about to be 53. But to somebody like Ben or Nick or somebody that works for me who has written code, yeah, no problem. I can do that. I can do that in my sleep. You know, and so the technology is usually not the hard part. Yeah. You know, we can usually figure it out, figure that part out. It's how do we do something that everybody buys into? And again, you just try to appeal to each like stakeholder, like what is it that actually drives them? What, what would actually appeal to them? How do we make your life easier? Whatever that means to you. To an operator, kick back and relax, engineer, you know, not have to sit there and delve through piles of data all day, you know, just 
have that data ready and get you an answer quickly, you know, give you something you can explore and get to your answer and move on about your day, start working on proactive things instead of firefighting all day, you know, to the manager, same thing. Like, why are all my people firefighting? Why do they not understand, you know, my bosses are on me to like produce more and we can't because my people don't understand the process well enough. And, you know, it's, you, you have to appeal to each stakeholder's goal. And, and that's sometimes that's even a part we forget. So. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, technologically uh, it's become easier uh, by the day to solve uh, most of these problems. So yep. I totally agree with you there. So, Another big topic that you um talk about a lot is the is the need for high quality and and, and high fidelity data for data driven operations, right? Which is often a challenge for 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 most industrial organizations. So my question is to you: is how can industries overcome the hurdles of 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 data quality and fidelity? <laughs> One is to acknowledge that they need it and that they don't have it today. That's that, just admitting that would be a huge step in the right direction, you know. And 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 I don't care if it's process data. I've talked to people who work with, you know, accounting data, supply chain data, you know, finance data, and anything that that's even not related to what we do. We all gripe about the same challenge: is the data is just not good enough, right? So one of the things that we started doing and and you know this is this is kind of unique to the to the pie system i mean if it was other historians we we'd have to handle it differently but you know with the pie system we've we started doing these data fidelity studies by using um pattern discoveries compression insight software right and there i can actually see what is the raw data coming in versus what you're actually storing and invariably I get people storing way too much or way too little information. And a, a lot of times, you know, engineers and the cloud providers, and there's a whole lot of people and people who have tried to argue with me and have ended up losing have said, we don't need to worry about any of that. Just keep all the raw data. I'm like, okay, so I have this temperature sensor that has a plus or minus two degree range. And the data goes from 70.1 degrees to 70.11 degree. Keep that. That's meaningful. No. And it can only move so fast. You know, I, I've been around, you know, being a controls engineer, I, I, I saw this, especially doing like PID tuning, right? Especially temperature loops. I could pour the coals to the quote unquote, you know, put put all the heat that I wanted to a process. It might be... 30 seconds to a minute before I see a degree of change. I see people scanning temperatures at one second. How fast can it physically change? I see people with a 500,000 gallon tank and they're scanning the level once a second. Okay, if you turn the pump on to empty that thing as fast as you could, how fast would it go? I would lose about a percent an hour. Why are you scanning it once a second? and keeping all the data, right? And so I try to really, you know, educate people and just get them to think through things systematically. You know, how accurate are my are my sensors? You know, because the big thing in IIoT, is, as you and I have noticed, you know, over the last seven, eight, 10 years is put sensors on everything. Okay, that's fine. Okay, store all the data. Okay, I've got a company that's looking to do 8 million sensors. Okay, 8 million sensors. Let's say you look at it every second and you store everything. Then you want to do a machine learning model on it or just even do a basic dashboard or, or do a dashboard and say, hey, I want to pull a year's worth of data and I've got you know, 20, 20 data points on this and I want a trend of each one. That's going to take a little while, right? Think through it as a system. Right. Most people don't, you know, how, how fast do I need to collect the data? How much of it do I need to really keep, you know, based on instrument error? You know, no one ever thinks through those things. They're just like, you know, keep all the data and, and the data scientists don't help. 
you know, because they're like, oh, I want one second data. Don't throw any of it away. I'll clean it later. It's kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, like when I move next, I'm going to downsize my house. Well, I'm not going to drag everything with me and then sell it. I'm going to sell it first. I'm going to get it all cleaned out and then I'll move that. Right. So I, I try to teach people get your data quality and fidelity right on the front end. Then you don't have to worry about so much cleaning and downsampling and all. I mean, you will, you know, more times than not, you still have to do some downsampling and, and things like that. You know, a lot of times we're looking at major swings in a process, you know, it may be five minute, 15 minute or one hour data that we're looking at to see that you don't need one second data more times than not for what we're doing very rarely. You, you just cannot see the change that quickly. And so it just depends on what you're doing. Like I, I just did a data fidelity study for a big power company and, you know, almost 950,000 data points. There are signals that they have that they absolutely need to keep once a second and they have very tight control ranges. Fine, not a problem. Then on um, those signals and those signals only, you try to keep almost all the data. Then you're wasting a whole bunch of disk space, bandwidth, and, and other things on temperatures, you know, certain levels, certain certain things that just cannot physically change that fast. Tune those down a little bit. And they were storing way too much data and they were having serious performance issues. And so I just try to get people to think about it. Like I said, systematically, what, what can this instrument reasonably produce? How fast can this data reasonably change meaningfully and start working toward that's what you store? Interesting. Interesting. Now, there are different uh, approaches uh, to um, implementing process-related uh, analytics. So it could be through, uh, I think as you have already alluded to, first principles, um, these uh, multivariate data analysis, and lately we've got uh, some uh, AI or advanced machine learning algorithms. So um, how should organizations decide between using these different approaches? That's always a tricky question. Um, me personally, I'm a first principles first kind of a kind of a guy in, in general, okay, in general. Sometimes the challenge, though, is you don't really have a good handle on what those first principles really look like. And sometimes the machine learning models can tell you a lot more about them. You know, what is it What is it that actually drives these processes? Often it's not because kind of the reason why people do AI or machine learning is there's an interaction between things that we we can't see or we don't understand. Right. And often it's it's much simpler than that. You know, it, it's usually one or two things, three things that really drive quality or really drive throughput. And they may not have a good understanding on it. And, a, and an ML model can help you understand that. And then you can build some univariate tools to help you understand that. So sometimes we, we've started there with a customer, like they don't feel like they have a good handle. Matter of fact, I'm doing that with a chemical company right now. I, I matter of fact, I need to respond to an email about that. But they have some some issues they have some swings in a particular you know variable and they don't really understand like where it's coming from you know why why is that happening and so sometimes you know an ml model to start can kind of help guide you back to the right first principles you know solution uh, there's a lot of industries that they have a good handle on their first principles, they just don't have a way to tell that story very well. They don't have good dashboards. They don't do any kind of management by exception. You know, you, you talk to some of these people, they're like, oh, we know what actually causes our problems. We just don't manage it well. You know, we, we yeah. they have their operators looking at 500 things instead of the 50 that they really need to pay attention to or the 20 or the five, right? That drive everything. And they're, so therefore they get a little distracted. They can't see, you know, these things that they know are going to cause them problems. They don't necessarily see it because they're not paying attention to that specific thing at that specific moment. You know, so how do you manage those by exception, you know, and let people know like, Hey, this is coming. So we, we try 
to really ask, you know, customers about that, you know, do they have a good understanding of it? And if so, let's just do some management by exception and some good dashboarding. And sometimes if not, you know, we can start with the, some of the multivariate models that we do. Like we use, we use Simcoe a lot, which is made by Sartorius Dedum. You know, it's been very helpful. One of our customers, you know, taught us originally, taught Ben and I how to use it. And then I actually got us training last fall, you know, on that software. So, you know, there's five of the six of us. Nick wasn't with us yet um, when we got that training, but you know, at least this way we have, a, you know, a tool that we can pull out of the bag and say, okay, well, you don't really understand that problem. Okay, well, let's, let's throw some data at it and let's ask some specific questions of that data, you know, and see if we can help you narrow in, you know, on it. Um, you know, honestly, sometimes you can't figure it out. Like sometimes it's just, they're not collecting the data you need or, you know, various reasons um, or there's an interaction you just can't see or find. You know, we've seen that a number of times, but we've we've also nailed some stuff that took them a lot longer to figure out or they didn't necessarily believe at first, you know, so we, we've got some stories on that. But like I said, to me, more times than not, you can explain things rather simply through the chemistry, the physics, the whatever it is you're trying to make. There's only so many ways that it can be done. A lot of the industries we work in have been around for a really long time. So the book's kind of written on how certain things are made. So a lot of times first principles, they just don't have a good idea and they think they need all this generative AI and everything. Well, they ignore that their data quality is crap. And so therefore they they throw a bunch of problems and, and they don't have specific things that they're looking for. They just think AI is going to solve everything and they get super disappointed. So I we always try to boil it back to a first principle solution. Either we may take an ML approach at it because they don't have a good understanding or we try to help them if they have a good understanding, get good first principles, you know, things built. So everything is a tool, right? I yeah. Sometimes for me, multivariate models, machine learning is the sledgehammer to kill a fly. Yes, it will kill the fly, but it is overkill. You could have killed the fly with a fly's water. Yep. Yeah. So we just try. So, so we've we've been burned a few times. We've you know we've made mistakes too, you know, and so we we but typically you're trying to a lot of times boil it back to first principles. But yeah. So maybe let's kind of like dive a little bit deeper into that um, uh, issue because uh, also what I find is that some um, um, Machine learning is is not well understood in the uh, process uh, or manufacturing industry, as it were. And um, what you find is that a lot of organizations are adopting it prematurely, to your point, and in some cases, yep. maybe not without um, uh, uh, not having the right data infrastructure for it. So in your experience, what are the signs that an organization might be um, uh, jumping the gun with AI and ML, and how can they better evaluate their readiness to 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 integrate and leverage these technologies effectively. I'll I'll tell a story here in a minute about a company that I think jumped the gun, one that we've done some business with. Um, I think how how you tell is when they have almost no no good dashboarding, no management by exception. They're not collecting all the data that they need or want. And they think ML or AI is going to solve all those problems. It's going to solve everything no matter what. That's just wrong. You know, we, we also think that in many cases, the data literacy throughout the organization is just not there. Sometimes even the passion to solve problems isn't there. Like we we did um we did a jo little joint um, project with um, a new company that we we hadn't dealt with before on in, in this space. You know, and the guy we were working with at the end customer, he got it. You know, and we were looking for some very specific things, and it turned out we ended up 
compare we were comparing apples and oranges. But one of the things that he was struggling to do is to get anyone at the plants and the experts, the, the domain experts on this manufacturing process to engage with him to actually go dive deeper and solve the problems. That's a telltale sign when you don't have that curiosity up and down the organization that you want to help go solve problems and that people are hungry to do that. They were kind of stuck in their ways. This is this is one of those industries where the book's been written, like they've been making this stuff for many, many years. And I still think there's value to be gained out of doing something like that, but they just didn't have the passion for it. You know, another like telltale sign, in my opinion, is the data literacy side. So we we saw a customer and we counseled them to not do it. You know, they have some plants that didn't even have a, any kind of data historian or anything. So they went from installing a data historian. I, I told them, get it installed everywhere. Get people looking at it. Help people understand what they're looking at. You know, help them build some trends and dashboards and things that will really will help them. You will get value out of that just right off the bat. And then you can come back and start to fill in the holes, you know, with, with some of the machine learning and everything. Well, they decided, no, we're going to go all in. And they did. So literally there were some plants, they installed the data historian and literally they, they built out the Pi asset framework. They um, built multivariate models in Simca and, you know, built some other tools. I'm wondering if those tools are going to stick because the people have gone from nothing. So in other words, you don't take a baby who isn't even sitting up and trying to force them to run, right? There's steps and stages, right? It's crawl, walk, then run, right? And we see a lot of companies trying to run before they even know how or have the culture to either crawl or walk. You know, we have another company that we did, we've done some consulting for, and I'm I'm hoping we're going to do a lot more with them. They did the opposite. They 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 actually listened to me, and they've gotten they actually put in Canary um, Historian. They installed it in all their plants, got it up and running, showed people what they had, built some asset models. You know, built a bunch of dashboards and Axiom, taught their people like this is what we've got, this is what you're looking at. They have gain that investment back probably threefold since they put it in. Just now they're starting to look at what are some of the other opportunities we can layer on, you know, can we layer, they're layering flow on to do certain things. They're looking to maybe do some more stuff with it. They're looking to maybe potentially do some AI. They're looking to get into the business intelligence world, but they did the right thing and that they laid that foundation of let's get this in and get people used to looking at the data and get them excited. We're like, oh, wow, I'm learning things that I never knew. Wow, my job's easier today because I have this. Like, this is indispensable. Yeah. Then you can start to slowly introduce these other things. Like, you, you can't do it just like that. And too many companies, I, I feel like have done it. And I, I even did a video not that long ago. My friend Adam Napolitano told me, you know, he, we were having a conversation one day. It's like, man, why are people not getting all this stuff? You know, why, why are, why is this still so hard? And he said, Jimmy goes, I think people have gotten burned now. They've, they've bought the hype. They've done all this stuff and they didn't get reap the benefit because they didn't do it the right way. And now they feel like they're burnt and they are just choosing not to do anything. And he may be right. I think some companies are there, not yeah. not everybody, but some are. Yeah, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, you have uh, kind of like mentioned a few uh, tools. Um, so maybe let's dive a bit into the specifics of the uh, tech stack. So, what is the typical uh, tech stack used in data-driven solutions? Uh, are there any tools or platforms you you'd recommend? And maybe if we can share some concrete example use cases where a platform that you've used significantly uh, uh, enhanced the, the, well, the process analytics? Well, obviously the Pi system has been a big one for us, you know, yeah. for many, many years, right? You know, we do all kinds of stuff in Pi Asset Framework and their event calculation engine, their analytics engine, 
you know, just putting together things in ways that people can understand things better, right? And then push them up on PyVision. You know, we push that data into Power BI. You know, we use Simcon on top of that. I mean, that's obviously a base tool that we've used a lot. Um, Canary is another one that, you know, we've recommended a few times. And, you know, we think that we haven't had as many reps on that one, but, uh, you know, we want to get there, you know, so um, we, we like like what they're doing. Um you know, they, they certainly have some things that the guys over data part, you know, have some great solutions. They've, they've been around the paper industry, but they've expanded into a lot of other industries and, you know, doing some things. They have some ready-made solutions out of the box that's kind of unique, you know, because they came from more of an integrator background and then built a product on top of that. So they've kind of turned from an integrator into like more of a product company. And um, so they've done some neat things. You know, we like we like Flow. Uh, I think I think what flow makes flow unique is it's all the things we're doing with asset framework decoupled from any of the data systems. So I can connect to whatever data historian I have. Like we have a customer that has Canary, Factory Talk Historian, Pi, IP21. Yeah. I don't see them ever reconciling that into one platform, one one historian solution across their entire organization. I don't see them doing that. For various reasons but the thing is you can put flow on top and connect to you know other systems like mes systems and erp systems and build standardized calculations dashboards all that you know that pull a lot of that data together so we we're, we're pretty excited about what they're working on and i know there's a couple other you know solutions kind of like that you know out there i think i think those are going to come into play more often um you know, the multivariate machine learning space is so, oh my gosh, it is so fragmented. I don't even know where to begin there. So we've, we've worked with uh, both Simca, you know, as I've mentioned, and we work with a, a platform called Lytix, uh, a company called Lytix. They've, they've got a kind of an interesting, you know, platform. They had a really nice t uh, talk at Aviva World last year. And so we got introduced to them. You know, I'm pretty excited. They, they have some things that could be really interesting. Um, you know, we need some more run with it, but they're, they're great people and they kind of work with customers the same way we do. They just want to go help people solve problems. Yeah. So culturally, they fit us really, really well. Um, and then it gets, I mean, it's just super fragmented. You know, we've, Seek is is doing a lot of really great things. Um, we took another look at them I guess earlier this year, I ran into my old friend, Steve Woodward, that I worked with at, at OSIsoft and, you know, at, at a TapiCon conference, uh, which is a paper com conference. And he was telling me how excited he was about everything. And so we took another look at him like, wow, you guys really made some serious strides in the last five or six years, you know, and, and this is this is super exciting. They're, they're doing some really cool stuff in that analytics space. Um. Some friends of ours at IOTA Software are doing some web-based visualizations on top of both Pi and Seek, but they're, I'm sure they're going to build drivers for other things the way that they're working. And they're, they're doing some unique things, even some potential 3D you know, um, modeling. So you could literally kind of build a 3D model of a plant as an operator interface, kind of a interaction, which is very interesting and unique. So we like the direction they're going. So I don't know, because I, I think it's going to get a lot more fragmented before people figure it out. I mean, Pi was has been a major player for a lot of years, right? And a lot of a lot of larger companies, especially continuous and batch process companies, really relied on that. You know, then when you got into more of the discrete stuff, you know, outside of the integrated steel mills like steel industry, paper or uh, food industry, food and bev. You know, in some other smaller industries, it got really fragmented. You know, you'd see Wonderware historian, you'd see Canary, you'd see uh, you know a lot of other things. You know, some ignition in there, and some other some other things that are kind of unique to their industry. But to me, I I like to see things that you can get data in and out of that you can build other solutions on top because there's no there's no really one platform still yet that you're going to be able to build everything that you ever want to do. Yep. Totally agree. Right. You know, the, we love the Pi system. It's great. 
but you can't do any of like the machine learning or you can't really slice and dice things like in, in a dashboard, you're like, Hey, I want to look at these conditions only when these, or I want to look at this trend only when these certain conditions are true. Well, you can't do that in PyVision. You can't do it in Canary's Axiom, right? That That's not what they're built for. You know, that's a business intelligence tool like Power BI or Tableau or Seek, you know, potentially because they, because they can do some of that. So you have to have something that you feel comfortable with that you can get data in and out of um, that you, you can move things around and, and really build more of a framework and a structure and an infrastructure out of it versus you've got to figure out how to integrate all these disparate systems together. You know, my you, you probably seen me recently talk to Lance Fountain, you know, a lot. When he was at Alcoa and I was had just come to on board at OSI Soft, he, he kind of taught me to think about here's how you think about data, right? And he was using Pi, the Pi system as an example. He said, if somebody comes to me with this OEE solution or an energy management solution, right? I have to have this foundational layer of data, you know, and for us it's the Pi system, right? Oh, you have a new OEE system? Okay, well, just plug into my data, right? And do whatever you want to do. Oh, you have a new energy management system? Great. Just plug into my data, right? And I don't have to tie these two systems together and start spaghetti coding all of these things together. I'm plugging into more of a platform. And he said, then, you know, if somebody two or three years from now comes up with a better energy management solution or a better OEE solution, I just unplug the old one and plug the new one in. And I'm not having to worry about all those integrations, right? Yeah. And that, that was in 2013, he showed me that or talked to me about that over lunch. And that, that probably for forever changed how I look at things, you know, but now I think it's even gotten more complex because you have all these other systems and, and you want to tie maintenance data and supply chain data and some ERP transactional data, along with your real-time data out of your plant from your historian or whatever application you have. You have to have ways to do that. And that's why I think, you know, a company like Flow is building something super interesting, right? I know you talk, you had a talk with Jeff not long ago. Like to me, those kind of things I think are going to get more important as time goes on, as as things get more complex. So okay. I mean, even even Aviva's doing some of that, right? They're they're trying to get people to, you know, tie some more things together, you know. Um because they know that not everything, not every piece of data is going to be necessarily in the Pi system for them, right? A lot of it, a lot of the really important stuff is, but not everything's there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, so those, I mean... Those are just some of the technologies, but the, the reality is, I, I think what you have to, as, as a user, you have to think about is, is this really a platform that I can move data in and out of easily? that I can get the data in easily from my control systems out to or integrate it to, you know, other systems because there's nothing that you're going to put all in one system. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, the ecosystem is getting more and more fragmented with some uh, tools specifically uh, for, 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 for a specific function. And really the idea is to get your... Uh, use a platform that allows you to get data in and out, right? Right. So I think totally agree with you on that. One, I, mean, so. I mean, think about how fragmented the MES space is. Yeah. I mean, it's super fragmented. You know, if someone wants to buy an MES system, I mean, I know like the paper industry has like three or four solutions that pretty much they're focused at that industry. You wouldn't use it in a food and bed plant. And just like you wouldn't use the stuff in a food and bed plant at a paper mill, right? It's it's so fragmented, you know, but if you can easily get data in and out, you know, to integrate with other systems, other data systems you're using, you know, that's a lot better. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, Jim, before we close this uh, session off, uh, I want to kind of like get your take on a topic that I think is super important for the industry. You've uh, already kind of talked about how many experienced industrial personnel are retiring and leaving young, relatively young, inexperienced engineers to 
take care of production. So, yeah. I mean, how critical is this uh, impending knowledge trend and what strategies do you recommend for uh, capturing this uh, invaluable domain knowledge into digital mm-hmm. tools so that to ensure like a continued success of um, process organizations? Wow. Um, I think it is the issue of the day for industrial manufacturers. In some cases, I'm beginning to wonder if it's not too late. I've, I've done two videos. One I did on LinkedIn that got me the most views of any video I've ever done. And it was just this quick hot take. I, this was probably like three or four years ago. And I literally said, our industrial plants are going to be running worse in 10 years than they are today. Even with all this technology, it won't be the technology's fault. It will be because we didn't transfer the domain knowledge. We let people get away before we got it captured. We didn't put an emphasis on it. And so now you're going to have all these young people running around trying to put all these tools in place and they don't even know what good looks like. They don't even know like, well, how do we make this product well? They've only been in the plant two years. I haven't been through the wars and and seen all of all of the things. And I think a lot of companies haven't captured that knowledge. And I think now is the time, you know, and matter of fact, we, we saw it with COVID. There was a bunch of people that took their toys and went home. They retired. They said, you know what? It's a good time. I think I'm going to take that package and leave. So, so therefore, I think it's even more critical. The ones we have left, we've got to pull all their knowledge out and somehow get it into some digital tools. That these younger people have a chance because, and I'm sure you're seeing it over in Europe too. And, and maybe even you saw this in, in South Africa as well, but all of our organizations are getting much younger and our younger people aren't staying in the same position for 20, 25, 30 years anymore. That's just not happening. You know, they're, they're just not this, this need or want to build that craftsmanship. Like I, I want to stay in this role or this industry and truly become an expert and a craftsman people really aren't encouraged to do that so much anymore. I was, you know, I play golf. I was watching this thing not that long ago on a Japanese golf club manufacturer. They, they make everything kind of by hand and they've kept it in the family. And these, these guys work for years to develop this craftsmanship. They still pretty much hand make everything. I mean, there, there is machinery obviously, but they're all hand finished. And, the knowledge that they have and the craftsmanship and the beauty that of, of what they produce and how it performs, you know, is amazing. Right. I'm like, how, how do we get that back in manufacturing? How do we get people who want to be craftspeople like that? You know, and I, and I try to encourage our people to do that. Right. I, I, I have to, you know, I always tell everybody when I hire them, like, I, I hope this is the last job you ever take, but I'm not naive enough to think it will be because it's just not how the world is today. But I do try to get them to really try to think about how to be craftsmen, you know, and what they're doing. And I, and I think this is the issue of our day. Cause I, I think, I think our jobs are going to get very, very difficult in the coming years, trying to help people get their manufacturing processes back on the rails. And we're going to have to look back you know, years at the data and say, okay, well, here's what you did to do things right. Five, six, 10, 12 years ago. Hopefully they've got enough good data to, that we can put that picture together again. I hope. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think for me also, that's kind of like one of the things that were um, strikingly different from the uh, software industry. So I went into the software industry first before uh, industrial automation. And, right. you know, in the software industry, people like stay in companies for two, three years and then they leave. And then yeah. moving into industrial automation, you find someone there who's been at the same company for like 30 years, 40 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
some software companies don't even live to be 10 years old, right? So it was yep. significantly different. And for all of that information to go away in a few years, it's, it's, it's tragic, right? So I think certainly scary. It's, yeah, yeah. Something that needs to be captured into digital tools. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually really scary. It concerns me, but it also encourages me that, hey, what we are doing, you know, what people, what, what things people like you and I are doing, you know, even though you and I probably take different approaches to get to the same, you know, goal, because you're, you're helping people who don't necessarily, you know, they may not have a pie system, like, well, how can I get data from here to there in into something where I can start doing something with it. You've been very, very good at that over the years to show people there's lots of ways to get it there, you know, with open technologies, right? I'll show you. And I think that's, that's like really critical, you know, but also what we just talked about is our job security for the next 15 years. Yep. You know, we're, People are going to need this more. It's just going to be difficult, <laughs> you know, but then again, if we're good at what we do, you know, we have good experience and good experience people. And, you know, maybe we have to go hire some of those experts, you know, and out of retirement, you know, and, and yeah. pay them. And that I think that's what com some companies are actually doing. I'm seeing that in some of our companies, they'll, they'll literally hire somebody back on, you know, by the hour, you know, they don't, the people don't work full time. But it's literally to get that knowledge capture and maybe get some things into some digital tools. We're working on one right now where, you know, this this process engineer had built a bunch of stuff in Pi Batch View that's been a tool that's been kind of legacy for a long time. And we're we're trying to replicate all that functionality in Power BI. Um, it's not super easy because that was a you know well-built tool for a very specific purpose at a specific moment in time, and he's very, very good at it. So he knows all the nuances of it. And so he looks at things a certain way. And we're trying to like figure out all those nuances, you know, and, and every time like Philip's working on it and he's like, hey, Cecil, what do you think of this? Well, you still haven't thought of this. And Philip's like, well, I didn't even know you're doing that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and, and that's that's the challenge, man. It's it's hard. Yeah. And, but I but I think, you know, we we certainly can't you know, give up because it's, it's without people like us, I don't know that manufacturing is going to have a shot. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I hate so, to yeah. sound that way, you know, but yeah. I, I, I believe I just see it. I just I feel like it's critical and, and, you know, some companies are getting it, Yep. you know, they're trying to, they're trying to capture that knowledge. Some aren't, some still have their head in the sand, unfortunately. But yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, on that note, Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and chatting with Appreciate us. It. And thank you so much for <laughs> sharing your valuable insights with the community. Uh, Appreciate really you inviting look me. forward to having you on the show again soon. Yeah, yeah, I think it was what a LinkedIn comment. Somebody said, you two need to get together. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to that. So I think that is... Yeah. Really important. So again, thank you so much, uh, Jim, for taking the time to join us today Absolutely. on the show and have a great day. Appreciate it. Thanks.